0: I'm Dr. Nicholas Douglas. You are listening to the NeuroNoodle Network podcast.
1: Welcome to NeuroNoodle's NeuroFeedback and Neuropsychology podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Janssen, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend, Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is to spread the word of the objective data you can receive from a brain map and the positive results of training with neurofeedback. This is an all-star cast, that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You get to see some behind-the-scenes action. It really helps get the word out because if they can't hear us, we can't help them. If you're not a subscriber yet, please visit NeuroNoodle.com and sign up for our newsletter. My name is Pete, and today we're chatting with the CEO and co-founder of NeuroField, Dr. Nicholas Dogras, Dr. Tikhanis. see? <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. Anything past that, and I'm and I'm screwed. Okay, so Dr. Nick and Jay, how do you guys know each other?
0: Uh, Jay's a uh, a teacher. He's a mentor. I met Jay Gunkelman years ago at ISNR, at the conferences. I remember meeting him. He introduced me for one of the talks I gave, and I was so happy to meet the legend, the man, the myth, <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> He says he's David, not
1: a legend, but he—he he is. He know. Is.
0: He, he gets mad anytime we do anything like that. He, you know, I even named a protocol after him. And um, <sighs> I know. See, this is a way to get him fired up. But uh, you know, the, Gun- the Gunkelman Protocol is—you uh, uh, know—it's—it's it's deep in the neurofield software. It can never be removed. It's encrypted. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I love it. In all seriousness, Jay has been a mentor and a teacher and uh, an inspiration and in the work that we do and honor it. Yeah,
1: Dr. Nick, how long have you been in the field? Uh, I mean, you have your own practice. Heck, you're building your own stuff. Uh, give us a
0: little background on you. Yeah, I, I started in EEG in 1987 uh, at Humboldt State University where uh, we studied uh, P300 uh, responses to subliminal and superliminal visual stimuli. Um, It was was a fun study. Um, We were able to show that you could elicit a P300 response um, uh, without the conscious um, awareness of the person that you're actually eliciting it from. Um, And that was was kind of my my crack into the field. And then I came back from Humboldt with my master's degree and um, I met Margaret Ayers. And, um, and I would end up working for Margaret uh, as, you know, getting, uh, um, you know, technician work. And, uh, you know, she had two stations there. I ended up getting one of her devices and learning her method of neurofeedback uh, back in the early 90s. Um, and that, that, that was kind of like the start, you know, it was, it was interesting. I was getting a PhD in health psychology uh, with an emphasis on uh, medicine and, and neuropsychology. And, um, at that time, Margaret kind of turned everything I learned upside down by demonstrating that she could bring a person out of a coma using neurofeedback. And I watched her do it and blew my mind. And next, you know, my plan of becoming a prescribing psychologist just went right out the window and I ended up, you know, going head first into neurofeedback. And over the years, um, I would end up participating in a lot of different kinds of trainings, uh, with, uh, different founders in the field um, and one of them here on the show, of course, and uh, you know, and, and, learning different methodology, pretty much every kind of neurofeedback device out there. I ended up putting my hands on and, and learning at one point or another. Um, and then in 2002, my son was born and he was premature and hypoxic. Necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, and uh, that's when I decided to build a neurostimulation stimulation device. Um, I wanted to figure out a way to stimulate the brain of an infant safely. And uh, we did, we figured it out. Um, and during that time treated my kid and I really didn't have an intention of, of opening a company or, you know, as a licensed psychologist that was enough for me and, you know, being able to practice was you know great. And I, I love the field, love neuroscience. It was always excited about it, still excited about it, you know, and, you know, but then uh, Corey Hammond got his, hooks into me and uh and would leave me these hypnotic inductions about ethics and responsibility and uh you know and it was like well you have to share what you created you know and so we didn't neurofield opened in 2008 during that time we've put together a number of different kinds of devices uh pulse electromagnetic stimulators direct current alternating current pink noise brown noise um, now we're getting into really fun um, EEG analysis tools, uh, volumetric brain, multivariates, source information flow, independent components analysis, linked up with UC San Diego, uh, getting my brain stretched by some of these really bright minds that um, are capable of engaging in really high-end neuroscience, computational neuroscience. And so we've put together a number of ERP programs and different things that uh, are really fun. Uh, and kind of drive us into the future
2: come full circle from erp uh, as a study in in school all the way to an erp software developing uh, within your company and um, it's it's been an interesting uh, journey to watch from the outside as well yeah i
0: wanted to get your take on it that's for sure i I, you know i was fascinated on you know a couple years ago i was i I thought oh yeah you know What's up with the ERP field, you know? And I, I started, you know, kind of dipping back into that. And uh, when I discovered how much literature, how much work had been done over the last 30 years, it blew my mind. And all these neuromarkers and the work of Yuri Krapatov in Russia really got my attention. Uh, his work is, is just groundbreaking. His books are, are really well written uh, I, I, I chewed those things up and then I got into Stephen Luck's work at uh, UC Davis. Uh, and then of course, you know, the, uh, EEG lab folks at UC San Diego, they designed all of their software around that. And what I discovered was that ERPs, um, are a very precise form of, uh, of medicine, basically Pref- precise form of assessment for the brain far more than anything else. I really had seen. And it really added a, a very cool component to, uh, clinical work.
2: Yeah. ERPs, if you if you go online and punch in event-related potential and diagnosis, you get a gigantic yield. If you put in EEG or QEG in diagnosis, it's much more limited. Uh, the, the EEG is very sensitive to a lot of things, but not very specific to very many. The pairing of ERP and EEG uh, ends up being a real powerful pairing because the ERP is wonderful di- for diagnosis, but you know, the EEG QEG is better for training and tracking progress and, you know, designing protocols and things like that, but it's not, it's not the diagnostic metric. So uh, uh, combining the two, you you get diagnosis as well as the ability to track and train and design protocols. So I'm, I'm really happy to see the, the pairing uh, coming, the neuroscience pairing coming back into the clinical world. Um, It's a, uh, it's going to be a powerful future with the two of them together.
0: Yeah. Thank you. I, I, you know, that's my belief as well. And it's um, building a bridge to neuroscience, you know, to, to academic neuroscience uh, because they have so much to offer us on the, in the clinical world. And, um, and so much has been done at this point that I've been, all I've been doing is, is replicating their findings, you know, uh, with schizophrenia reaction times P300 responses and then doing, you know, neurostimulation, neurofeedback treatment, and then going back and testing again, you know, and then finding that what they were telling me was true. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, this is, you know, the research was good. It was really, you know, you could replicate their findings. and Machine learning with ERPs is just um, amazing. You know, thank God for the pandemic. I mean, I know it sounds crazy to say it, but that, that grounded me for a number of months where I just sat at home and wrote these EEG lab scripts um, to chew apart this ERP data, you know, and it was, it was awesome, you know, and and, and that's what what I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make this program and I'm going to, you know, create the test and then create a soup to nuts analysis piece with it. And it worked, Uh, (laughs) you know, I was like, lo and behold, whoa, you know.
2: And it's, it's wonderful to see the, uh, the academics from UC San Diego's computational neuroscience program, the Schwartz Computational, um, they provided software that was shareware and they, they approved anybody developing software could use modules out of it uh, without paying licensing fees or anything like that. You know, nice, pure academic neuroscientists without uh, commercial uh, bias towards anything, mm-hmm. and they, they've they've built some wonderful tools. And um, uh, EG Lab was foundationally powerful for uh, people doing analytics. Now, uh, they they also uh, in the developing of the Shareware basically they avoided clinical work entirely for twenty years or more, and right. only very recently, and I I, I I kind of referred some people into the. Uh, Schwartz Center, uh, who were clinical people. Uh, and it's, it's been interesting to see the academic neuroscientists from Schwartz come out of their center to spend time uh, as a volunteer within a clinical practice. The clinical work gives them a purpose. All of that high-level mathematical processing is wonderful t- technique. But a clinical model gives them a purpose for all of it. So they're, you know, they're volunteering their time in a clinical setting because it gives them that that purpose, which is, I think, uh, we've leveraged them out of being, you know, uh, shying away from anything clinical. And I think they're starting to accept the fact that their tools are uh, uh, clinical tools as well. I totally agree. You know, it's kind of like the, you know, how you
0: made that analogy about the uh, uh, the 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 circle, the what was the circular firing squad, uh, (laughs) you know, I mean, and and what ended up happening was we we went to them and said, I don't want to remake the wheel. You guys have already done all this stuff, and what I want to do is I want to get in step with computational neuroscience, with all of our analysis tools, everything that we do. I wanted to be able. I want to use the same formulas, the same math. And they said, "Well, here, you know, because you can use this EEG Lab stuff, go ahead and use it." And so we did. And and so everything that we calculate in all of my software is using um, EEG Lab backends. I mean, all of it. Yeah. And so it's exactly the same math. And and I mean, I mean, exact same formulas. And and that it makes all the difference in the world. To earning yeah. credibility and 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 you know saying okay we're, this is what we're seeing clinically we want to build a bridge here um, and really you know draw the field of neurofeedback into this um, yeah. so that we can we can be in step with them and not get left behind yeah. you know because that's what I was really seeing that over the last yeah. five years there was um, th- there was attempts to um, isolate the field. Um, you know, and, and and that is not what we need to do in order to facilitate the evolution of this technology. And it yeah. doesn't matter about my company or anybody else's company. It's about the good that this stuff does for people and our ethical responsibility to learn and, and develop this as scientists. And so uh, that that was really the impetus in, in, in my, you know, my intention here over the last couple of years.
2: It shows uh, the, 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 the developing of the product that you've got has really come quite a long ways. Could you talk
0: about that with us? Could you talk about your product? Could you talk a little bit more about ERP and why we do need to know about it? We have lay, lay folks on the listening in. We have professionals as well. Sure. Sure. I actually gave a, a talk at ISNR last weekend uh, about it. And uh, I have a PowerPoint if you want to see it, uh, but I don't know <laughs> if we want to show anything like that. But, um, uh, you know, event related potentials, you know, you have an event that is time-locked, okay? So in a lot of ERP uh, studies, they have what's called go-no-go no go tasks. And so in the task that we created, it's a matching task. When you, t- when you see two goes in a row, you click the mouse one time. If you see a go and a no, you ignore, okay? So it's like a continuous performance task like the IVA or the TOVA. Or Simon Says. I and mean, he says, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same kind of thing. So you, you know, you're creating something where the person has to wait for the proper stimulus to go. And so we're monitoring EEG the entire time we're dropping markers into the record. And, and so we can, we can isolate these pieces of time. And when we do that, we do it 400, 500 times. And, and then, you know, we capture 500 seconds of, of goes, for instance. And, and then we, what we do is we grand average all of that, and we can see the brain's potential responses. Now, these have been outlined over the last 50 years, you know, with P1, P2, P3 responses. These were positive waveforms that happened 100, 200, 300, roughly milliseconds after the presentation of a stimulus. And so P1s and N1s are detection responses. P2, P2s and N2s are kind of like, uh, you, can, you can discern the location of response coupling with auditory processing and motor processing. And then P3s are kind of like executive functioning processes where you're making a higher order um, uh, decision about the stimulus. And so what was discovered was that the P3 response, well, there's a, there's a number of different things. I mean, P1s and N1s are used in hospital after a baby's born, for instance, where they, they can determine if the child is able to hear it's a very simple task where they actually attach a couple of sensors right to the head. It takes all of about a minute. And then you can, see the, you can see the auditory response almost immediately if the kid is hearing correctly. And so it's an immediate task and it's used clinically all the time. Um, in schizophrenia, uh, they find that um, most people have a, a long reaction time that's greater than 650 milliseconds to a go-no-go task and they don't produce a good P300 response. Um, and same with autism. Uh, kids with autism don't produce um, a good P300 response to faces, particularly at T6. Um, and so you give them happy faces or sad faces, and they can't pick up on those so- social cues or prosody. And so what we did was we created this test, it's, and it's very much like a continuous performance task, and, um, and you can set what the stimulus are. We have these default ones for auditory and visual stimuli. But you can actually make your own and just drop them into the test. Um, so, and we so we have like targets for dyslexia, for instance. We have faces in there, and then we have the standard, just regular go no go. Um, you launch the test; it takes about twenty minutes. Um, when it's done, um, then uh, it'll give you the reaction time. Uh, and then test-taking responses throughout the entire test. So you can see if a person is able to sustain their attention, whether they fatigued, whether they made a number of errors, how they made their errors, commission, omission, that kind of thing. And then you can look at um, the data. And then so you just push this button, and it launches EEG Lab, and it runs this script that I meticulously wrote, uh, and that was a whole other learning experience. But it runs through, and it cleans the data, uh, running Amica, and it gives you these options to remove eye blinks, for instance, to reveal true neural information. And this is the beauty of the adaptive mixture independent components analysis, which is generated you know, from the Schwartz Center of Computational Neuroscience at UC San Diego. This algorithm accounts for 100% of the data. It's been shown to be highly reliable and um, uh, efficient at um, being able to isolate like an eye blink, for instance. Um, So we use this program, this this categorization program called IC Label. Once Amica finishes, we run the the analysis in the IC Label, and it matches all the components to neural information, eye blinks, heart, um, muscle, line noise. And it'll tell you the percentage match of the independent component to those specific things. And then you have a choice to make. You know, that's when you look at the data and you say, Okay, well, this, this really does look like an eye blank. I agree, let's remove it. And so you can choose what components to remove, which ones to leave in, and then it will remove those, then it will epoch the data, and then it will create your ERPs for you. And then it creates, it'll create ERPs, um, and it'll, it'll give you what's called a time topo. Um, I don't know if you want to see images or not, but I have all this, I have tons of them on my machine. And so the time topo shows you the latency of the of the p300 response does it come in at the right time we know all the timings yuri kropotov has done enormous amounts of work showing how a visual stimulus comes in through the eye goes to the reticular activating system of the thalamus that hits 17 18 19 brodman areas gets shot up through the you know temporal parietal areas to the motor strip to the auditory centers to the frontal lobe and then back again where you actually click the mouse right so that, that process should take anywhere from 350 to about 500 milliseconds, most people, right? And your reaction time should be a little less than 600 milliseconds. So these timings have been well-established in neurology and neuroscience for a long time. And so with that information, you can run this test, look at the timings of the P300, and you can eyeball it almost immediately. They start, they come in late after 500 milliseconds. Not only will you see where they come in late, but you'll actually get the independent component of where that dipole actually is being generated and so it's kind of like knowing where the action is on the freeway so what this does it gives you a very precise measurement that allows you to target your form of treatment so then you can you can do neurofeedback you do neurostimulation you do combinations of the two you can do a lot of different things whatever you know whatever it is that you do um, but what we found was that um, and this was kind of after the fact, we started generating more data and we were generating the event related spectral potential which showed how the brain actually phase locks. Um, so we get, this, we get this latency response, then we get the ERSP, which is the spectral potential that shows how the brain will lock from delta, theta, alpha into, into beta one. And again, this is another Yuri Krapatov uh, discovery where he was saying that children with ADHD don't have good theta-beta synchronization when they engage in a go-no-go task. And sure enough, as soon as we tested it with these kids, we saw uh, an F4 theta-beta desynchronization. We said, oh, wow, look, it's right there. Um, and, and again, you don't need a Z-score. You don't need a norm reference to tell you that that's not functioning correctly. You're, you're, you're taking a specific precise measurement from the person directly. And we would stimulate that area and after a series of treatments, we would go back and test it again. And there's, there's the synchronization. So the, the tools are, that we're de- you know, developing are, are based on all those metrics. And now we're building in the source information flow, which is the grandeur causality model um, written by Tim Mullen uh, from UCSD. And it's a beautiful algorithm that looks at causality responses in the brain. And, and I'm real excited about it because it doesn't assume bi-spectral conductivity, which I think is a mistake in, in, uh, in neuroscience. What it does is it looks at what causes what to fire. And so it's a complete causality model that makes perfect sense when you look at a system that has 80 billion neurons, 100 trillion dendritics and, yeah, and synaptic connections with roughly seven quadrillion events happening per second. All right. That's like, poof. You know, and I'm like, okay, I think we need to advance our thinking here. Yeah. You know? Wow. Hey, Nick, you froze up. Can you repeat all that? I'm sure. sure. I'm like, wow, <laughs> all that <laughs> I could. <laughs> yeah. Holy cow. That's something. <clears throat> wow. Thank you.
1: If you guys want to share the screen and show something, you know, go ahead. I'm sure the listeners at home would love to go to our YouTube channel to see the visuals. But, you know. It's, it's unlocked, so go, go, go for it whenever you're ready.
0: Sure. Yeah, I can show you some stuff. There's some data that's really interesting, but Jay was going to say something. so
2: I sure. In, in 2001, it. Yuri Krapatov and I lectured together in Portugal, and, uh, and uh, during one of the breaks, I asked him, are you using ICA to de-artifact your EEGs? And he said, no, we tried principal component analysis, and it just doesn't work. So they had given up on it entirely. I handed him a paper from Schwartz Computational Neuroscience. Two weeks after that lecture, I got a disk with his software with ICA implemented on it. And uh, he went on to uh, get the Russian prize for science uh, for using ICA to decompose the EEG and the ERPs. So it's kind of like a Nobel prize uh, uh, within Russia. So, uh, uh, he He's been uh, uh quite happy uh, having had that handed off um, uh, but he's you know i I thought of it as a way to take out artifact, which it is, but uh, he he was wiser than I, and he realized that there were components in there that were meaningful uh components the the pieces that make up the EEG. so uh um, you know he turned the hammer around instead of just a claw hammer to pull pull out nails. He turned it around and built himself the Sistine Chapel or something. You know, he's, he's a brilliant neuroscientist. I, I, I had him the right tool, but he knew how to use it.
0: Yeah. You know, I always keep this right by the side of my, uh, my desk all the time. You know, I'd have some of these seminal texts here that you can continue to refer to because there's gems of information in there that reflect, yeah. you know, a very uh, illustrious career, 30 years plus um, amazing work. You know, no. it's interesting, now, now we're using the, um, so the ICAR was popular uh, for years and, and recently the AMICA, uh, um, you know, which is the adaptive mixture independent components analysis is, is, the, is in the forefront now. Yeah. And that, and that uses, um, it's advanced the, you know, it uses our Gaussian curve to learn the, the, the EEG. The original ICA used one and the AMICA uses three. So it's a higher resolution uh algorithm it's still an algorithm you know you trust it as well far as you can throw it but yeah you know cuz you have to review the data and whatnot but uh it's 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 continuing to be advanced and 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 um, optimized which is really cool yeah.
2: Yeah. The the ICA has a number of different forms of ICA and the amica is the most advanced form. It does a better job, especially taking out muscle, uh, which uh, the other forms don't really do a very good job of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Well, let me show
2: you some, a couple
0: pictures. Um, if you guys are down with that, uh, this was the presentation I gave the other day. Um, but this is this is one of the slides I really like um, because it shows the uh, why ERP is a good thing to do, and and again, it's talking about these timings and and the flow of information through the brain. And this is something that I lifted straight from Yuri's book, uh, so you know it's uh, <laughs> it's great. I don't have to develop all these slides because everything's been done. But this really got my attention, and um, you know, over the years we uh, we've been looking at how to hone this system in and, so this is our timing system that we came up with, and, and I, I think this is it's cool because in most go no go paradigms they use two computers, and and what we discovered is that really you could do it with one, with modern technology the the, the synchronization is extremely fast. Um, we use a uh, what's called a CAN bus, a USB system, and this is what's used in braking systems for like BMWs and stuff like that. So it's extremely fast communication rate. So we can mod- we can actually have eight lines of, of data happening digitally at any given time. So it gives us the ability to lock in these markers in the EEG in real um, virtually real time. Um, but so uh, let's get down to uh, the Schwartz Center stuff. And this is um, you know when when we start generating the data, we 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 you know obviously get into the their back end software and um, they have tons of resources, but what we did, you know, I say it can be glitchy. It can be because if you don't know what you're doing and you're running MATLAB, it can go sideways in a heartbeat. But when you're running a script that's pre-established, it, it, it's just like running any type of function in any type of commercial software. Um, uh, so we, the, we, the steps we go through are, uh, you know, there's quite a few, um, but basically we we run through all of the auto artifacting, the adaptive mixture, Um, decomposition of the data then we use the IC label to sort it and generate all this stuff and I go into what ICA is and this is what IC label looks like Um, and when you get a a strong match um, you can see it's 100% matched to the brain you can see the location of the dipole and then you can see the spectral signature of the dipole Um, and then when you source this in Loretta you get a really cool idea of of where that signature also exists. It may not exist in just one spot, but it may be in multiple locations in the brain. And recently what we've been doing is, um, we have a device that's a um, a neurostimulator. It's a a cranial electric stimulation. And we um, can generate different kinds of random noise. Um, Brain's a pink noise generator. And so um, one of the things I'm really excited about is the aperiodic noise in the brain and looking at the 1 over F distribution. And when you give pink noise to, this, to, to the brain, it sucks it up, it, it utilizes it. It can utilize it to correct the 1 over F. And the data that we're seeing now suggests that this is plausible hypothesis. We use neurostimulation, different kinds of it. Uh, and I generated a number of, of co- what we call combo protocols where we give a, um, a pink noise or brown noise stimulation simultaneously with a, uh, a regular uh, like band of alternating current, like SMR, for instance, 13 to 15 hertz, or parasympathetic 0.14 to 0.4. So we figure out the range we want to give and we base all this on the, on the maps. We found that uh, with neurostimulation, alternating current and direct current, that it causes a calcium and sodium ion uh, cascade to occur. It it, it causes the calcium and sodium ions in the astrocytes to surge. When that happens, you end up getting like almost an accelerated form of neuroplasticity. The brain starts to communicate in in, in a much faster, more fluid way. And this surge becomes, it actually cascades through the entire brain basically. And so when you're stimulating this, it lights it up and it stays active for 90 minutes after the session's over. So we, we, there's a lot of implications with that. But basically, we, we ended up um, pairing the treatment with like physical therapy, speech therapy, um, cognitive therapy, psychotherapy, um, different things. And we found that you could actually uh, enhance and accelerate a person's movement through treatment. Um, I'll go through some fun cases here. If I can, sorry. How are you doing the stimulation? How's that happened? We have two different kinds. We have a a unit called the Genesis, and that's where we actually attach electrodes to the scalp. Cranial electro stimulation, you use a little bit of uh, 1020 paste, attach the electrodes to the scalp, and you run, you have an anode cathode, basically, and you're running current between the two. Um, That's, and, you know, basically the safety standard states that you don't exceed more than 40 minutes of stimulation with no more than 2.5 milliamps of neurostimulation, or actually no more than four milliamps. That was a, as of, uh, 2017, the latest safety study showed <clears throat> this is a safe method for stimulating the brain,
3: okay.
0: uh, provided that you don't exceed those parameters. And that was a meta-analysis covering 144 studies with over 4,000 participants. Um, we're, we're currently, um, Um, in um, lockstep with the FDA attempting to get this all on the table. But what we found, here's a kid with uh, ADHD. Uh, We gave the pink noise stimulation. And one of the things you see here is uh, um, this is an average reference. You see this new rhythm. Um, And what we found was that uh, the pink noise, giving it right through, using the Gunkelman method of uh, 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 split anodes at T3, T4, and a cathode at CZ, uh, we stimulate the motor cortex with this pink noise, and after a series of treatments, um, it it stabilized uh, this this rhythm basically, and, um, and you know we know it causes a frontal lobe disengagement, and so when it stopped, what we observed in the kid was that his attentional ability improved, and he started generating remorse for his actions because he was really violent, um, and then he was starting to read better, which is amazing. Um, But there's one I want to show you. Um, I have a guy with schizophrenia um, that we've been treating. You know, when he came in, I was thinking, we're going to see what we can do for him. Um, He was pretty delusional, paranoia, command-type hallucinations. So I looked at the ERP data, uh, data, and the first things we found was that um, with the ERPs, people with schizophrenia didn't produce a good P3. Not as as when you look at, at, um, you know, match controls. This is a study done by Stephen Locke. And then their reaction times were, were long. Okay, so, uh, you know, m- most normals had a um, reaction time at about 576 milliseconds. The schizophrenics were 648. So we gave this guy pink noise, and here's his pre post ERPs the pre on the left, the post on the right. And the zero point, this line is where the guy saw the match. Okay, and so um, what you can see here is a really noisy ERP. It's really deregulated, it's desynchronized, um, and there's a long latency. And after a series of treatments, you can see now he, he's actually generating a P3 response. So from no P3 to a P3 response, but he's also generating detection responses correctly. And we got pretty excited about that, so we calculated the ERSP, and then what, what we started to see is when we started here, you should see a little red blip in each one of these little plots. And what you're seeing now is a potential response that's starting to occur throughout his brain. And we got real excited about that. So we started to see potential response a synchronization. We saw a P3 and then his reaction time improved. We tested him five times with five different ERP tests over a period of time and treating him. He started at 772 milliseconds and he's holding firm at about 495 now. Um, and so the reaction time improved, the P3 um, uh, occurred just as the research said it would. And then we asked him, what do you think it happened? You know, what, what happened with you, <laughs> you know? And his response was pretty cool. It was like, you know, I, I'm, he's feeling better, you know? And he, he's like, well, this wasn't this, you know, immediate fix. But the, the hallucinations decreased significantly. Behaviorally, he was much better, and he you know everybody around him saw significant improvements. Um, so you know again, this is this is matching what has already been found in literature, which is pretty cool. Um, but there's so much more. You know, we have cases on alcoholics and Dirk de Ritter's work uh, looking at P300s with alcoholics. This is an alcoholic. Um, that we saw the pre post and you can see how this p300 here is really dirty it's desynchronized and after serious you know, treatments the brain just gets in lockstep and then we saw the uh the synchronization here was just gangbusters with this guy you can see how now you have the red potential response in every one of the of the regions measured um, again it's not a z score you can see this immediately and then behaviorally the guy's like yeah i feel a lot better Here's a person with bipolar disorder. This one was dramatic. Um, she actually came to me and said, you have to prove to me um, that I'm not, um, uh, I'm not crazy because I'm feeling so much better. After 18 years of, of uh, significant bipolar II, um, her brain literally stabilized. And it was, it was a remarkable. See, I didn't believe the data. We ran it several times.
3: Are you seeing any effects with uh, dementia?
0: You know what? We um we don't have any data on that yet. Um, but I, you know, uh, right now I just got a new case of a uh, eighty um, nine year old male with um, um significant movement issues, and so we're gonna start there. But the data, when you look at the um, when you look at the data regarding the aging brain, um, current you know direct current stimulation and alternating current has been shown to Be effective in in improving neurogenesis and and facilitating it, and because it causes a hyperperfusion by stimulating cells, you get more blood flow, more oxygen, more resources into the system. And for the aging brain, it helps to reduce symptoms associated with aging. You know, and so there's there's studies around that that have been done. Um, You know, in America we're behind the curve. uh, You know, because you know, if, if you look at Russia, the UK. The EU, Australia, Canada, Japan, <laughs> every one of those nations have, you know, they, they've all um, implemented the use of, of neurostimulation, and it's publicly available. Um, so, and
3: so, Dr. Doris. I have this question for most everybody who comes on here. So my background is maybe a little more of the traditional psychology, I've done a lot of psychotherapy for you know, a number of years and then got into neuropsych. So I, you know, Skip and I went to the same training program. And so we know a lot about the geography, you know, of the brain and things like that. And we do, you know, the traditional testing and we do have continuous performance tests that we use and other no go, no go tests. Um, and so all of this is, is super compelling, but it has, has this feel um, of it's kind of this underground science. You know, if we start talking about these things with other uh, run-of-the-mill, we'll say, uh, psychologists, they, they kind of look at us like we're nuts or, you know, show me the data, show me more data, and I still don't believe you, show me, you know, triple blind data. Um, so, you know, my, my question is, you know, you're having awesome results. You're able to, you know, look and make some diagnosis based on these, these uh, potentials. The, the question is just generally like, why, why isn't it in the U S more? Why isn't it more uh, common? And what do you think is holding it back besides money? Like we, we've talked about that a lot is do we, can we back up the studies? Do we have the money to, to, to finance the studies? Obviously we don't. Um, can you, can you say what else you think might be holding all this information back?
0: Sure. You know, I, I, and I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, I have a Dropbox uh, uh, folder of, of documentation, you know, you know, because my company is, um, you know, we are headlong with the FDA right now, attempting to get these neurostimulation devices. We have one of them that they have registered and we're, we're now FDA registered. Actually, two of the devices are registered. We have a third in the pipeline right now. And so none, it really hadn't been done with direct current in the United States, um, you know? And so that's, that's an interesting thing. And we're looking at like, why, you know? Because I, in my Dropbox, you know, when the FDA is talking to us, they're saying, okay, you have to prove this, you know, give us the studies. And I'm, sure, I'm like, sure. I have literally um, a Dropbox, I think there's about almost 500 gigabytes of documentation in that folder um, of established studies that have been done around the world for the last 25 years in other countries. When I named off those other countries, those are countries that are doing active research and have been doing active research, you know, and it's all available. People just haven't been digging around looking for it because it hadn't been something that was really um, above board around here. It is an underground kind of thing. People are going, well, you know, what's this neurostimulation stuff and how legitimate is it? I'm more than happy to show you a ton of studies. You know, that's why I reference the the ERP books are are great because, you know, the ERP science is already done, but the neurostimulation science is well-established. You know, there's tons of of meta-analysis showing equivalence of TDCS, transcranial direct current stimulation, transcranial alternating current stimulation for the treatment of depression. That's equivalent to RTMS, you know? And, And one of the reasons I think it really hasn't been, Uh, it's starting to get out there in in a big way. And I think it hadn't hit the mainstream uh, because uh, there was no company that actually facilitated the clearance of a TDCS device in the United States. To date, there is nobody that has done it, nobody. And so it's just like mind-blowing when you can walk into a pharmacy in Munich and pick one up that's equivalent to what we've uh, generated and buy it over the counter. And so, you know, you can do that in a a number of countries. So I think there's other motives. Obviously, money is one. You know, I think uh, Americans are, um, they bought into big pharma. And I think that that has been a method for treating neurological disorders for a very long time. And showing people that it's possible to get better without the use of these things or limited use is a challenge. And so, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm also along with all the other crap that I do. I'm also the director of FHE health in Deerfield beach, Florida. It's a inpatient outpatient uh, mental health and drug addiction center. We have 180 beds. We have seven labs in there that are running seven days a week. And um, we treat people with all sorts of different kinds of problems and addiction, opioid addiction, benzodiazepine. And um, when I first went there, the, the, the medical officer freaked out. He was like, I don't wanna to touch anybody detoxing with this. And then you know we put together a, a whole program and, and a, a whole study to look at the safety of it. And what we found was not only was it safe, but that we could actually facilitate um, the detoxification process in a faster, more efficient and safer way with less medications on board. surprised the hell out of all of us, you know, symptoms of depression and anxiety went down within three to five days. They started sleeping within seven, you know, and when you're sweating out your eyeballs coming off opiates, it's no fun. Right. And, and so we found that, you know, once we got the docs on board, then they were so happy because now they didn't have to prescribe as much You know, the, the, you know, and from their perspective, it was, it was a win, you know? And so we found ways to, to marry the technology with the psychiatry and and with the medicine. And I think this is a a long-winded answer, but I think that's what it's going to take is education, showing them the data, you know, using that. And that's one of the reasons why I went back to ERP because it's well accepted in neurology. It's the gold standard. And, 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 and it's also, Except that these methods are accepted, you know, in academia. So by getting in lockstep and, and showing the clinicians and the you know, and the physicians that we're using these established scientific methods, my hope is is that we can get them to understand the efficacy of what we're doing.
2: And and with ERPs, the the technical detail of how it's how the stimulus is presented, the interstimulus intervals any small change in the ERP procedure changes the outcome. And uh, standardization, or lack thereof, has held back ERPs from being generated across laboratories. Within a lab with the same procedures, everything works beautifully. Tell the next lab over, gee, we're getting this great result. They try to replicate it, but they've got a little procedural difference, different outcome. So having standardized to the academic Standards of of the ERP, you now have the ability to transfer data from one laboratory setting to another to another, and the, the you know accepting the standardization uh, from the academics as opposed to trying to reinvent the wheel uh, ended up being a very good move. Nick, um, uh, it, it helps. The other thing is, if you're going through the FDA, it's expensive. As a corporation, you're you're spending you know, you could hire two people full time uh, for what you're dumping down the FDA rat hole. If you're a TDCS company with a box that sells for 200 bucks, how are you going to afford to spend, you know, $500,000 on the FDA? If if you're looking at a a TMS device that sells for 250,000, yeah, you you can afford to plunk a million dollars down on a process. But uh, the, the there's just not the economy of scale for this little tiny, cheap device. You can build it with a handful of parts and a and a box, and you've got a you got a device. So um, you know you you really have a, a an impossibility for a manufacturer, one manufacturer, to end up affording uh, getting it through the entire process. Now, Nick's doing it with his company, but uh, the reason that it hasn't been done previously, uh, isn't that the science isn't there. There's nobody with the economic wherewithal to push it through the process with the FDA.
0: We've, we've and, spent upwards of a million dollars in this process okay. over the last three years. And we're, we're, we're not funded by anybody. You know, we're our own company. And thank God we have a community of people behind us that are, you know that are advocates of what we do and you know, and they've been researching this. And so it's it's been very helpful with, with the economic assistance. Uh, yeah. But it's been, it's been, a we had a device that we were ready to give them last year. And then I'm sitting with the FDA consultant and he said, he took one look at the device and he goes, oh, that won't pass the fourth edition rules. And I said, wait a minute, we're in third edition. He goes, the fourth edition came out last week and I'm gripping the table and I'm, I'm looking at him and I said, and they go, so why won't it pass? He goes, you have to have, it has to be watertight now. And and he said, yeah, they have the water test. And it, I'm, I, I'm looking over at my engineer and, and he's getting ready to run out of the room. And, uh, and he said, they put it on a, what, like is an old turntable and then it, it wobbles. And then they, and then they pour water on it while it's running. And, and, and you know, and I'm like, how, how, you know, and he said, I want you to imagine the dumbest person in the world getting your device and attempting to commit suicide. because goes, if, and if they can't, then you pass the FDA test. And, I, and I'm like, okay. It's just, yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's been, it's been, um, it's been challenging to say the least, you know?
2: Um, <laughs> so I've seen your uh, company through the years uh, from, uh, some earlier days, I remember a meeting in Cancun with <laughs> Dirk and yourself and myself doing talks. Um, the whole idea of cross-frequency coupling, uh, pink noise instead of white noise, brown noise instead of pink noise. Uh, all of these advances came out of basically deep discussions about neuroscience with Dirk. A, a couple of years after that, he shows up at a meeting. And he sees your equipment having implemented the ideas that he shared uh, in Cancun. And he, (laughs) he, he said, well, uh, we have to get together once a year. We'll pick some resort somewhere. We'll all fly in, hang out, party for a few days, share a bunch of ideas. You go home, you build a device. Uh, We come back the next year. You you show me the device. uh, We'll go to test it. um, And we'll talk about a new device. So, uh he was really happy seeing the implementation uh of his insights into actual hardware uh that could be utilized it's it's been wonderful seeing that progress fairly rapid progress at that uh congratulations on having a very keen ear uh for the next uh best thing uh, hanging out with dirk is a good a good way to get exposed to the next best thing
0: you know what uh uh yeah and, and you know that would I'll never forget that that night uh, it was a fun night and, and, and you know the, the discussions were just I remember my mind was blown as my my head was just spinning as I went to sleep and and I woke up thinking, like
1: mine is right now
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well I, I have to say it's the only time I've ever seen Nick leave a party there was the party was going full blast. And Nick suddenly disappears for about an hour with his programmer, uh, telling his programmer what we're going to have to work on next. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's not everything that can leverage Nick out of a party. Um, yeah, it takes a lot. You know, it, just,
0: yeah. it takes a lot. So that was that was pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> well, do, Dr.
1: Nick, thank you so much for coming on today. What a show. We got to bring you back.
0: Oh, I'd love to. You with visuals.
1: Well, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna tie this over with our YouTube channel. You know, we're figuring this thing out. Uh, Doctor Nick, do you have anybody you would suggest to come on the show
0: uh, after you? Well, if you haven't had Yuri on, you need to get Yuri on the show. I mean, all right. I would say, I would say he's he's a person that you need to hear from. Uh, there's there's a lot of cool ones. Colleen Liu in Australia. Um, she's an academic who's done a number of studies on. Um, neurostimulation and um she's an established scientist um in a university in Australia uh showing the effectiveness of tdcs with depression and bipolar um and so she would be a good independent source you know to to bring on there's, okay. a, lot of, there's a lot of cool people and had dirk on you know you got to get dirk on he's a fab, fabulous person and um an amazing neuroscientist and neurosurgeon
1: to to plug your site it's a, Neurofieldtherapy.com.
0: So there's neurofield, neurofield.com, and then there's our clinic here in Santa Barbara, which is neurofieldneurotherapy.com, and then we have our school, uh, schoolofneurotherapy.com, um, where we, uh, you know, we have the QEEG certification course that you can take online, and our neurostimulation uh, um, classes that you can learn how to do what we do. And, um, and of course, you know, utilizing our methods for computational neuroscience. Hey, Nick, On yeah. I, I know it's not directly related to you. What was the name of the treatment center in Deerfield again? Deerfield beach. It's called F H E F H E F H E health. Okay. It, used to, it used to be called the Florida house experience, but they just, now they just use the letters F H E health. Okay. Um, uh, Cool facility. Um, you know, I got, I got Shanghai there uh, uh, three years ago <laughs> I to be the director. And, uh, but I walked in there and they said, we want to do this neuroscience stuff uh, correctly. And, uh, and we're asking you to do that. And I said, I'm more than happy to do it. I don't know if it's correct, but I'll, I'll give it a, the old ball player a swing. It's a great facility. Um, inpatient, outpatient. Very good. Good. I've got an uncle in uh, Pompano. So I'm, I'm over in that way uh, occasionally. I'm there every month for a week. Oh, is that right? Okay. <laughs> I play that room every month, you know, it's like, <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Dr. Nick, thank you so much for coming on.
0: Thank you for having me. Really. That's fun. We're, yeah. bring,
1: we're bringing you back. And we thank you all for listening to neuro noodles, neurofeedback and neuropsychology podcast. Dr. Laura can be found at Jansons.com. Dr. Skip can be found at drskiprin.com and Jake Uncleman well, he's the king of Google. You can find him everywhere. He's a legend. Idea for a topic, please email Pete at NeuroNoodle.com. we we'll leave a note or a voicemail. you can do now in the link in the podcast notes below. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. This would be a good one to check out to, for the visuals. Uh, we'll put the link in the podcast notes below. Follow us on Twitter. And Hey, if you like us, buy us a coffee on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. Woohoo! Hear the music.